the gospel according to John. Uh, excited to be doing this. Um, who knows how long we'll be here? Um, but that's okay because of all the gospel accounts, to me, there's none greater than the gospel according to John. Uh, this book is rich in theology. And it has a whole different purpose and a whole different um, uniqueness to it than the other gospel accounts. And before we get started into really diving into verse 1, I just want to kind of give a little bit of a background of this gospel account. We know that the, the writer of this is the apostle and disciple John. And let me just make a real quick uh, distinction if I can. This is not John's gospel. That term gets used an awful lot. Or Mark's gospel, or Luke's gospel, or Matthew's gospel. That's just inaccurate. Because the gospel belongs to God. It is His gospel. It is the gospel according to John. And I think that's an important distinction that we have to make. So, I know that it's been a habit even of mine, to say that in the past, and, and just unknowing of that, or just unaware of that term, but uh, it is not John's gospel. The gospel, like I said, belongs to Christ. He is the sole possessor of this gospel. And that's why, in my Bible, I appreciate the NASB translation. If you go to the title page there, it says, The Gospel According to John. Uh, I just want to make that distinction because I think that's important. Uh, the gospel does not belong to John. John is giving an account of this. Uh, the gospel is God's and God's alone, and to which is the power of God unto salvation. But the author of this gospel account is John, who was the disciple and the apostle of Christ. He was a son of Zebedee and the brother of James. Interesting note here that John and his brother James were named the sons of thunder by Christ. And we see that in Mark chapter 3. But this isn't the only book that John authored. Uh, he also is credited with writing 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book that we all love, the book of Revelation. John gets credit for being the author of those books. So we have the gospel according to John. We have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And we have uh, the book of Revelation to which John wrote while he was exiled to the island of Patmos. John is also, in this account, he's the one who's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I always find that quite amazing and unique, that anytime you see in this letter, in this book, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we automatically know that that is referencing John. And by tradition, John is considered widely to be the youngest of the disciples, and you can look at the difference of ranges of how old people speculate he may have been when he was called into following Christ. But he was the youngest uh, by many accounts of the disciples. John sat on the right side of Christ at the Last Supper and was the disciple that was present at his crucifixion. So John is quite unique in his work and his uh, earthly uh, events. But I just wanted to kind of bring that into our attention that John is the author and some background on who he is. 
I think it's also important that we discuss maybe the difference of this gospel account, the gospel according to John, as in comparison to the other three gospel accounts. Because there are four gospel accounts, and we know them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But you'll see the heading over this on your sheet is it says it's the non-synoptic gospel. John is unique. John is different. John is not considered a synoptic gospel. The other three are. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospel accounts, and that is because they give a synopsis of the life of Christ in greater detail. And John is going to start at a whole different place. And we see that there's a majority of things that are in the gospel, according to John, that they're not in the other gospel accounts. And we're going to see that the focus of the gospel, according to John, is different in a sense. John is not a synoptic gospel. It doesn't go into all the details of the life of Christ as the other gospel accounts do. It gives us more of a heavenly account, if you will. He sets our attention and our focus towards the heavenlies of who this Christ actually is. You see, the gospel according to John does not start out with his birth. You won't find the birth of Jesus in the gospel according to John. It doesn't start there. John doesn't tell us his genealogy all for a good reason. He doesn't give us his physical genealogy. He doesn't describe his birth. He doesn't go into a lot of detail in the baptism of Christ. He doesn't go into uh, the details of Christ's early uh, years on earth. He doesn't go into a lot of the miracles and a lot of the events and a lot of the people uh, that Jesus came across as the other gospel accounts do. He doesn't do any of those things. It doesn't talk about his transfiguration. It doesn't talk about his ascension into heaven after uh, his resurrection. John doesn't cover any of those things. John doesn't have parables for us to glean information from. That's not John's focus, and that's not his purpose in this gospel account. That's why John is unique. That's why John is not considered a synoptic gospel. But John does give us amazing details on very specific things. And he gives more weight in his gospel account to certain things than in other gospel accounts. And what we see in describing of that is we see a significant a time in the Last Supper. Starting in chapter 13, we see the Last Supper. And what's also interesting about this gospel account is that a good percentage of what John is going to write about is going to cover the last week of Christ's life on earth. The other Gospels are going to spend a lot of time of the events leading up to this moment of his, his, his arrest and his crucifixion and all those things. But John is going to start in uh, chapter 13. He's going to start at the Last Supper. There's 21 chapters in chapter 13 where we begin at the Last Supper. And there's multiple chapters that give rise to what happened in that time frame. We also see that we have something in the gospel according to John that is not found in any other book in the Bible. We've covered it at length here at many sermons, but it is found in John chapter 17. It is the high priestly prayer. In the gospel according to John, we have the curtains pulled back, if you will, and we see this inner Trinitarian prayer between the Son and the Father. That's not mentioned anywhere else in all of the biblical account. John gives us privilege to this event. John also gives us great detail, the most detail of any one book in the Bible regarding the Holy Spirit. He starts in chapter 14 and then 
preceding chapters to really tell us about the Holy Spirit, who He is, what His role is, why it's important that He comes. John gives us great weight and great consideration to the Holy Spirit that other books and the gospel accounts do not give us in that great of detail. We also see that the I am statements of Christ are found in the gospel according to John. The book of John is heavily theological, and it is an evangelistic book. And here is the goal of John. And we're going to read this here in a second. But here's what John wants his reader to know. Who Christ is. That's important. Because if you don't believe in the true Christ, then you don't have true salvation. If you don't understand who Jesus is, then you can't believe in the truth of this God. And salvation is not yours. You have to believe in the true Jesus of the Bible. You have to believe in the true nature of who he is to have true salvation. And that's why John is writing this book under leadership of the Holy Spirit in the way he does. And we find this in John chapter 20. We're going to go to the verse 30 of John chapter 20. It's on your sheet there if you want to follow along. This is the primary theme, focus, and purpose of the gospel according to John. And I may read this every time we gather to speak and work through the gospel according to John so we can get it into our mind and we can see if this is the nature of what's going on in these verses. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point of John. To show who Christ is so that you believe that he is the Messiah, he is deity, he is the Son of God, and that by believing in this true nature, in this true person of Christ, you may have eternal life. That's the point and the theme and the purpose of the gospel according to John. So let's look for that as we travel through this gospel account. What's interesting here is that in John's account of the gospel, the word believe is used 98 times. It's only mentioned, that word believe is mentioned 245 times in the whole New Testament alone. And almost 100 of those 245 times that the word believe is used, it's in this letter. That's the importance of the gospel according to John. He wants you to know who Christ is. He wants you to know his deity. He wants you to believe he's the Messiah. He wants you to believe that he is the Son of God. And that by believing in his name and believing in who he is, you may have eternal life. We're going to see that word mentioned a lot too. Life and light. Believe. This is the starting of the gospel according to John. This is a unique gospel. It's not a synoptic gospel. And that's why we're going to find out throughout this whole day why John does not start at the birth of Christ on earth. He could have. All the other gospels speak about it, but not this one. Because John's going to try to tell everyone that listens that his, his beginning was not at a at a manger in Bethlehem. That's not where his beginning was. But it dates far, far back to no beginning because he has life in himself. He wants you to know that this is the eternal God. And that's what we're going to begin to unpack in this gospel account according to John. So if you will, with all 
that short background behind us, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 1. And this is where we're going to be at all day long. To me, chapter 1, verse 1 of John is one of the most rich, one of the most deep, one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible. So we'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we will start to unpack it. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're overwhelmed already from what we know and what we've read. Lord, there is great weight in this verse. God, there is great weight in this gospel account that was written by your apostle, John. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we travel through this book, that you would lead us by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Lord, to make your word come alive in our hearts and our souls. Lord, that our lives would be changed as we learn of who you are. Lord, I pray for help today to begin to to, to preach this in a manner that's understandable and, and does it justice, Lord. And I can only do that through your help and your leadership and your guidance. So, Lord, we step out of the way and we ask that the greatest teacher of all, the Holy Spirit, would come and guide us today. Lord, we're so thankful that in the beginning you were and you've always been and you will always be. And, Lord, I pray that our hearts would rejoice in that. And we would always believe in who you are. We ask these things in your name. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We will talk about a lot of that tonight, but I just want to talk about the first portion of this verse. In the beginning was the Word. That's as far as we're going to get today. I've got it on the board, so it's official. The word. You'll see this word in the Greek is translated into what we call the logos. In the beginning was the logos or the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John uses an interesting word here, if you will. Why does he use the word word, and why does he use the word logos as it would have been in the Greek, because it's going to have a significant meaning both to the Jew and to the Greek who is reading this work. Because in ancient Greek philosophy, they were concerned about seeking what they considered to be the truth. They wanted to know the greater realities of life. So a lot of the Greek philosophers of that time they also use the word logos. In some of the writings, you will find the word logos, but it is not the eternal God. To them, the word logos was what brought reason and logic, and it was this abstract, uh, uh, mystical force or, or uh, just this inanimate, uh, non-personal, abstract force that would give the universe meaning. 
It would be what holds it all together. This is what they believed that there was, that they, the higher uh, rationale and reasoning that held the universe together, they dubbed that the Logos. They believed this what gave life and meaning to the universe. However, they did not consider the Logos to be a personal being, but rather an impersonal abstract force that gave meaning and order and harmony to the universe. So when the Greeks are reading the word Logos here, they would know that to them that word Logos was what to them gave the world and the universe reason and meaning and held it together. But it wasn't personal, and it definitely wasn't the Son of God in their eyes. To the Jew, to hear the word, they would also have great meaning to this. They would go back to the Old Testament, they would go back to sacred scripture, and they would be reminded of those terms and the use of the word of God or the word. And we see this in creation. How was creation brought into existence? By the word of God. We see that in Psalm verse 6 of chapter 33. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. I think that's an interesting verse here because we see that in creation. We know that the Father is there at creation. And we know that all things were brought about by the Son of God. That Jesus is the one who brought and created all things. And we know the Spirit of God was hovering on the waters. And we see that here in this verse. That the Jew would look back and they would see the Word of God. And they would see that Word. And they would know that this is what God is speaking and we see it in the prophets here. This is just one example that I have on your page here. But in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 through 9, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speaking of Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah was speaking the message of God. Jeremiah was speaking and he was a representation of God. He was the ambassador to God. And it was God by his word that was brought into Jeremiah. The word was put into his mouth. And if you wanted to see the message of the father in the prophets, that message was given to them by the word. And then they would live that word out and they would speak that word out. And they were speaking on behalf of God. So to the Jew, they would look back in antiquity and they would know it. In the beginning was the word. And what's interesting, we'll cover this more tonight. What you see in John chapter 1, verse 1, is an exegetical work on Genesis 1 1. In the beginning was the Word. Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God. You see, John is not starting in Bethlehem. John is not starting with the genealogy on this earth. John wants you to know that this God, this Jesus that you see in the flesh, is not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He is the eternal God. That's the point of why John starts here. He starts all the way back in the beginning. So when 
you read these accounts and you see these accounts and you, and, and you know what you're reading here is not just an ordinary human being. He is the eternal Son of God, the Word who took on flesh. See, John sets this far beyond the genealogy of man, far beyond his birth in Bethlehem. And he says he starts at a place that our mind can't comprehend because he does not have a starting place at all. This is what we talked about on Wednesday night. God has a seity. That means he has life in himself. That means God has no beginning. There never was a time where God was not. God has no beginning. So when we see the term in the beginning, whenever you see that in Genesis 1-1 or in John 1-1, that in the beginning has nothing to do with the beginning of God's existence because God never did not exist. That in the beginning is talking about creation. In the beginning at creation was the Word, was the Logos. Now, just we may get a little ahead of ourselves there, but in the beginning was the Word. Speaking of the Logos, how was the universe created? By the Word. Who brought all things into creation? The Son of God is the, the one who all things were created by. You see the Trinitarian work at creation. You see the Trinitarian work all throughout Scripture. We have a triune God. And if you don't believe in a triune God, you don't have the God of the Bible, and then you don't have salvation. Our God is triune in everything He does. But you see, in the beginning was the Word. The Greek philosophers would see this, and John is going to say, in the beginning was Christ. The Logos does have a name. The Logos is in charge of this universe. He is giving meaning and he is giving order, but he is not an abstract being. He is a person. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what the Greek would hear when he re they read that. And to the Jew, that term, the Word, and the Word of God, they would know that that was speaking of Yahweh, the eternal God. You see, John is making his case that Jesus is God you see, the Word is what the Father is speaking. That's what words do, right? You're listening to words now. You're hearing the message. You're hearing the words. And the Father has a message. The Father is speaking, and the Father continues to speak. And in the Old Testament, we see that He spoke the world into existence. He spoke the Word to the prophets. But now in the New Testament, something miraculous is going to happen. The Word is going to be made flesh. And he's going to enter and walk upon the very earth that he created. And the Bible tells us that the Father is invisible. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says, that the Father is invisible. No one has seen him. No one can see him. So how do we know the heart of the Father? How do we know the message of the Father? The Father... If we can't see the Father, how do we know about Him? How do we know what He's saying? How do we know what He's like? How do we know anything about the Father? Because we listen to what the Father is speaking. And the Father has spoken through the eternal Word. And that eternal Word is His Son. You want to know the Father? You look to His Son. Because His Son is the Logos. His Son is the image of the invisible God. His Son is the exact representation of His being. 
And in the Son, in the Logos, the one who was there before creation, the one, the word who came to the prophets and, and gave instruction and spoke on behalf of God in the Old Testament, now he's walking the earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the message of the Father speaks so clearly and so loudly and so beautifully and so powerfully through the eternal word, which is his Son. The Word is the Father's message to what He wants known. And now John will use this term, Logos, to which the Jew and the Greek would both know, and he would use it to describe Jesus. Jesus is what the Father is speaking. Jesus is the message from the Father. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Listen to what it says. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. He spoke in the prophets, didn't He? And that word, we just read that, Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to him, speaking the message from the Father that he wanted portrayed. Long ago to the fathers, he spoke in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. The eternal word of the Father is spoken by the life of Christ. He has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Through him also he made the world. Interesting. Now we're going all the way back to creation. How was creation made? Through the word of God. The Logos is the one who created all things. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the, the word of his power. When he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of Hebrews tells us the eternal father is continued to speak through his eternal son. No one has seen the father. No one can see the father. He's invisible. But we see the father in the son. Look at this Trinitarian picture that's going on. From all eternity past, the Father has a message. The Father has a word. The Father has His nature that He is getting out to all of creation. He's speaking this, but He does not speak it in just some abstract way. He speaks it through the Logos. His eternal word, which is His Son. That's why the writer of Hebrews right here says He's the exact representation of his nature. Do you want to see the Father? Look to the Son. What do you see in the Son? You see a love for his sheep. That's what the Father's heart is. You see love and righteousness and justice and wrath and mercy and kindness. That is the Father being spoken and displayed by his eternal word, the Son. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 17 says this, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. Again, the Father is invisible. He is spirit. No one has seen the Father. However, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, do you see how you cannot 
distinguish and separate the eternal Son, the eternal Word, and creation. He keeps going back to this. Because the Word was at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And to be present at creation means what? He was not a part of the created order. That's because He has life in Himself. He is full of seity. To be present at the creation means that you're not in the created order, which means that you're not being created, which means you have life in yourself, which means you're eternal, and you're the eternal, immortal God. This is Jesus. How amazing is it now that the Word became flesh? The one who is before all creation, the one who was there at the creation of all things, the one who has life in himself, this eternal Word, the Logos, is coming to speak the message of the Father, and he does that by entering into his creation to which he has made, taking on flesh, and speaking the message of the Father. You want to see the Father? You look to the Son. You want to hear what the Father is speaking? Look to his Son. His Son is the eternal God, the eternal Logos. And then in John 14, which we'll get to this, who knows how long. At this rate, I'll be 58. But, who knows? John chapter 14, verse 6 through 9 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way. You've heard this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to talk about the truth and the life next week. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. That's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus himself says, wait a minute, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Because he's the message. He's the word. The father is speaking through the eternal logos, which is his son. And then Philip says this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen the Son, you've seen the nature, you've seen the message of the Father. The Logos is at creation, the Logos brings all things into creation. The Word of God is being presented in the Old Testament. But now the Word, the message, takes on flesh. And in this life, we see the perfection of God. We see the holiness of God. That's what the Son is speaking, the holiness of God, the purity of God, the righteousness of God. The importance of prayer. Isn't this ironic that Jesus was praying to the Father? You see the importance of prayer to the eternal Son, to the eternal Word. You see the importance of fasting and prayer. You see the importance of holiness and truth. The love, the eternal love of the Father upon His sheep. This was shown by the Logos coming and laying His life down for those sheep. The message of the Father, the heart of the Father is speaking in His Son. And it doesn't stop, it continues to speak. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And that is what John is going to tell us. This is not just a human being. 
Yes, he's in flesh, but he's truly God and truly man. No, he's not just a good teacher. No, he's not just a prophet. No, he's this, not this ordinary person. He is the eternal Logos. He is divine. And he is God himself incarnate on this earth. But the Holy Spirit is also part of the speaking process. Because remember that we have a God that's triune. We have a God that is one being in three divine persons. That's the best way to describe the Trinity. The best way to describe the Trinity is one being, which is God, and three divine persons within that Godhead. They are co-equal, co-eternal. They've been there at creation. They've been there before creation. They have no start and they have no end. There's never a time when the Godhead has not been from everlasting to everlasting. That's mind-blowing. We talked about this on Wednesday. Our finite minds always know a beginning, and it always knows an end. But there never has been a time where God was not. Doesn't have a beginning. He is being. He's the only being, the true supreme being. He has life in himself. No one created him. He's before all things. He holds all things together. God is. That's why he said in Exodus chapter 3, I am. I am ultimate being. I am. And that's why Acts 17, as Paul's speaking on Mars Hill, that's why he says, in him we live and we move and we exist. We have our being because he is the ultimate being. Without him, we have no existence. This is what John is trying to say, and we'll talk about it more tonight. He's there at creation. He's eternal. He's a triune God. Who was there at creation? The Father, the Son, and what was hovering over the waters? The Spirit, you see that the triune nature of God is present in the first few verses of our Bible. But what about the Holy Spirit? Because when God speaks, He speaks to us in a triune nature. The Father is giving the Word. And the Logos is the Word. It's the message. It's the heart of the Father. It's what the Father is speaking. And we see it in the flesh, in, the, in Christ, in the New Testament. But what about the Holy Spirit? Because... When God speaks to us, it's triune. There's an amazing verse in John, believe it or not, in chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. It says, but when he, speaking about the Spirit, it is not an abstract force. It is not a non-personal thing. The Holy Spirit is he. It is the Godhead. It is God. He is God. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative... But what he hears, that's interesting, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit does not speak on his own initiative. But the Holy Spirit speaks to what he hears or who he, what he hears. Do you see this in your life? Do you see this in Christianity? Do you see this in the pages of Scripture? Who does the Spirit of God point us to? The word of the Father goes out by the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit hears the message. He doesn't speak on his own initiative. The Spirit speaks to what he hears, and he's hearing the message from the Father. And who does the Spirit draw us to? The Word. The Logos. The Spirit does not speak to himself. The Spirit says, it's about the Son. Look to the Son. 
Look to what he did. Look to the pages of the New Testament. It's regarding the Son and his work on this earth. The Spirit does not say, look at me. But he hears the message of the Father. And he speaks back to the Son. Because if you want to know the Father, and you want to know what the Father is speaking, you look to the Logos. You look to the eternal word. You look to his son. And that is who the spirit draws you to. So even when he speaks to us, when you're reading your Bible, you are being spoken to in a triune way by the triune God. That's what he goes on to continue to tell us in this verse. Look, whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. This is Jesus. He's saying the Spirit's going to glorify me. He's going to point back to me. He's going to pull everybody's focus in their hearts to the true word, the Logos. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. How many times have you heard this? By false teachers and on TV. Oh, God spoke to me today. I've got a revelation that no one else has had. I audibly heard him. He came into my room. You know, that's how the, uh, I believe it is, that's how the Passion Translation came about. The one who uh, wrote the Passion Translation was, uh, said that Christ himself came into his room and told him to write a new version of the Bible. Saw him, looked at him. So please stay away from that with all your <laughs> might. But we want the Father to speak, don't we? How many times have we prayed that? Father, speak to me. I want to know you, Father. I want to know who you are. He's an eternal God, and he eternally speaks. God is speaking every day of our lives. How many of us have stopped to consider the trying nature of our God? So many times we say, well, you know, me and Zeke have been talking about this quite a bit lately, and it's, it's very true. Say, why, why are you a Christian? Who, who saved you? Well, Jesus. It's true. You've got one-third of the Godhead that saved you. What about the other two? If our religion and our Christianity is based on just Jesus, we've missed the trying nature of the Godhead. Who chose you from all eternity past? The Father. Without the Father, you have no election. If you have no election and you have not the Father giving to the Son, who does the Son go and die for? The Son, the eternal Word, the Logos, spoke the love of the Father toward His elect by dying on the cross. You want to see the heart of the Father towards His people? Look at what He's speaking in way of the Logos on the cross. God is eternally speaking through the cross. I love my sheep. And if you want to know, if you want to hear me speak how much I love my sheep, look to the cross because the Logos is speaking my heart. You see, it's the triune nature of God. The Father chose you, 
and gave you to the Son, and the Son then goes and dies for those who have been given to Him, and the Spirit comes and regenerates those whom have been chosen, whom the, the Son has died for, and He seals them, and He leads them, and He guides them into sanctification. You have to have a triune God to have the true God of the Bible. Yes, Jesus did die for us. Yes, He did save us. But what about the Father? And what about the Son? Or what about the Spirit? It's triune. He is triune. Our God is Trinitarian. It's a harmonious thing. And because His nature is triune, He also speaks to us in a triune nature. You just read it. You just saw it. The Father spoke through His Son. We see that recorded in the pages of Scripture. And then the Spirit to which guides us in our daily lives. And when we read the Bible, it points us to the Logos. And if it points us to the Logos, guess what? And we know who the Son is, then we know who the Father is. He is constantly speaking to us. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus did not have His beginning in Bethlehem. Do you see why John's gospel account is different? He's saying, listen, I've got one purpose here, and it's to show you that this is the Son of God. I want to take you to the heavenlies. I don't want to start you in the manger. I want to take you back to creation. And this same one who's going to put on flesh and walk among you and going to do and say all the things you're going to read in this letter is beginning. Actually, there's no beginning because he has no beginning. But I want you to know this. He was there at creation. He is God. Jesus is God. He is deity. And he is the one that this book is about. And if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. Ninety-eight times he writes the word believe. Believe it. But we see that the word of God, the Logos, has the final victory. How did he speak this world into creation. He spoke it, and the Logos created. The eternal word brought creation into being. And how will this world end on the final day? Let's look at it in Revelation chapter 19. He was at the beginning. But he's also there on the last day. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John says, in the beginning was the Word. And now on this last day, the one who's coming, guess who wrote the book of Revelation? It's John. He wants us to continue to know that the eternal Word, the Logos, who was there at the beginning of creation, is here on this last day. And it says his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that it may, 
with it may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod or iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Logos. In the beginning was the Word. And by the Word of God, all things were created. Tonight we're going we're to give you verse upon verse that says that it was Jesus who created. It was the, he was the one that was brought all creation into being. Nothing was made that was not made without God the Son. And as He speaks creation and creates this universe... With the word, he brings final judgment upon this place, not with a sword, uh, not with a physical sword in his hand, not with an atomic bomb in his hand, but how does he destroy his enemies? With the word of his mouth. The word of God. the Logos, on that day, is speaking the message of the Father. And that Father is this, reject my Son, reject the Logos, and you have no hope. Because there will be wrath and punishment and destruction forever and ever. That's what the Word of God is saying in the form of the Logos on the last day. Out of His mouth, He speaks this. The world was created by the Word. And now with His Word, on that final day, judgment and wrath is brought about to those who, as John is going to try to exclaim and, and exhort, believe in this God so that you may have eternal life. I find that fascinating. That the Word who was there at the beginning, on the last day, by the Word, by the, the, the message from the Father of wrath and justice, is being spoken by the eternal Logos, the Son of God, who has a name written on Him. No one knows, but His name is called the Word of God. This is a big deal that John is saying, that in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Son God has been eternally speaking. He still speaks today. And if you want to see the Father, you want to see what the Father's speaking, you look to the eternal Logos, which is His Son, who was there at the creation and is there on the last day. We must remember what the point of John's gospel account is. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, in that believing you may have life in His name. And what is that name? The Word, the Logos, the Word of God.
Pay attention as we go through John. The message of the Father is speaking. And you're going to see it so clearly. Especially when we get to verse 14. And the Word, the eternal Word, the one who was there at creation, the one who has no beginning and no end, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And why did He do that? Why did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? To save sinners. To show the heart of the Father. And so that by believing in this eternal Word, you and I and all who believe would have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we've never seen you, but we know you. And we've seen your nature. We've seen the exact representation of your being. And Lord, we've heard your message. We've heard what you are speaking because you're speaking it through your Son. If we see Jesus, we see you. We see who he is. We see who you are. And Father, we thank you that you are eternally speaking. Lord, give us ears to hear. And Lord, we thank you that your speaking to us in all of humanity is triune. So, Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit stronger in our lives than you've ever have. Lord, and point us to the Son, point us to your Word, so we can know life and truth, and we can know you more and more. Lord, thank you that in the beginning was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, we give you glory. We give you praise and we give you honor. And Lord, I pray that it would put us in a state of awe to think about this concept, this thought, and this reality that the eternal Son, the Logos, would step foot onto this earth that He created to fulfill all righteousness and to save His people. It's incomprehensible to our finite minds, Lord, but help us by the way of the Holy Spirit to grasp it the best we can. And Lord, for you be the glory and you be the honor. In the name of Jesus, the eternal Son and the Logos, we pray. Amen.